brothers and sisters of color, we gotta do better. No survival in this era if we turning on each other. Like a family reunited, they hate it when we together. Now let's talk about it, listen to the teachers, let them tell you. You won't fax behind your questions, Dr. Rick, give them that. Followed by wise words, introducing Dr. Michael Blash. Many guests and activists every week lead them by example. When there's problems, there's solutions. Together we are the answer, the teachers. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Rick back at you with my uh, colleague, friend, confidant, uh, Dr. Michael Blanchard. Together, we are the teachers. And today we have a guest uh, who I also consider to be a friend, uh, also an advisor uh, and a bunch of other things. Uh, Mr. Roger Grant. Uh, he is both uh, a well-rounded expert in tax law and tax liabilities, as well as a financial uh, advisor. Today, we're going to talk and focus on the importance of asset protection. Uh, a lot of people always talk about revenue. They talk about uh, getting the money, but very few people understand the importance of keeping the money. One of the things that uh, I learned uh, in my journey in finance is how the major players work. When I say major, if if they're not packing a billion, uh, I see them differently. And it's not just the billion number. It's what it takes to get there and how they think. And there are four basic things that I found out about billionaires, no matter who they were, Ray Dalio, David Swenson, uh, Frank Vogel, Warren Buffett, down the line, sp specifically investors, is some things that people don't think. Number one is they are going to be aware of their tax liabilities when they're investing before they put their money in it. They already know what their tax liabilities are. Number two, asymmetric risk reward, where we are taught you got to put a lot in to get a little. They're looking for opportunities to put a little in and get a lot. Uh, diversity. They are diversifying their investment across assets. And they are also uh, very aware of ways that they can lose. They, where, where the average person is talking about how much they're going to make, major investors are trying to make sure they're protecting themselves for loss. So they look at how much I stand to lose versus how much I stand to make. And those are the things that I found that no matter which one I looked into, that was the case. Those are the four things that are across the board. And so what we're talking about here specifically is tax liability, how we protect and one of the things that I hope he gets into that's real big with me, because I know as blacks that we're real heavy on this idea, is one of the things that when I was studying David Rockefeller. Now, if you look at Rockefeller uh, and look at what he amassed in wealth in his time and look at what the value of the dollar was at that time, he's the wealthiest man ever, you know, if he if you took the money and the value that he had back then, he was richer than uh, Musk uh, and, and everybody that's following behind him now. Uh, so but one of the things that he always said wasn't 
what you owned, it was what you controlled. And one of the things I know notice about us is, do you own it? You, is your name on it? Well, number one is if your name is on it, it's an easy target. Um, number two, you, I know a bunch of people with their name on stuff they don't control. And so it's about having power and control. If you look, the people who are making the moves aren't the ones you see with the, with the titles and the ownerships. They're the ones that are pulling the strings of the ones with the titles and ownership. So that thing goes levels but like he and i have talks we are part of a, a specific group where we're doing some things but his mind moves different because it has to and one of the things with me publishing uh my 25th book which is the war on black wealth breaking the code the last half of that entire book is about wealth building and the easy part that people don't believe it but the easy part is get getting you can get money very few of us know how to keep it because our minds aren't built around it. And so I'm hoping that he's going to elaborate on that. Roger, tell them a little bit about yourself. Tell them why it's important. Uh, bring them in and then we'll talk about it after you kind of introduce yourself and let them know who you are. All right. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it, man. My name is Roger Grant. I'm the executive trustee of the Grant Consulting Group. Uh, we're a financial research and consulting company. Um and what we specialize in, first and foremost, is proper structure, structure of your possessions, structure of your assets, structure of your nonprofit activities. Proper structure is the key to everything because it determines how much of what you or what you spent your life building that you retain. Rick, you said something that I learned early on in my life insurance career, using life insurance as a retirement vehicle and comparing it to a 401k. Um, one of my mentors taught me, he says, it's, it's not about what you earn. It's about what you keep and what you spend. Forget what you make. Forget what you save. It's about what you keep and what you spend. So you just touched on wealth generation. You mentioned four principles. And it's funny because they almost line up exactly with what my mentor taught me in the beginning. He said, Roger, there's four tenets to building wealth. The first and foremost is put your money in the proper tax position. Number one. Number two is to protect that money. Trust structure, proper trust structure does those two things. Number three is to put that money to work for you, because when your money's working harder for you, then you can work for money. Now you got a shot at freedom. Right. And number four was to pass all of it, every last dime on to the next generation. Right. This that last piece is where we're really missing the mark. From what I understand, um, the baby boomer generation is likely to be the first generation of, of, of blacks in America that leave the, the next generation in a worse position than what they started in. Absolutely. That's not acceptable. And we see it on all levels. We see our superstars, Prince and Aretha, no proper structure, no, 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 no uh, estate planning. They end up in probate with $80 million, $300 million. Probate is going to suck up 40, 50, 60% of your estate before it ever gets to anybody you love. Um, James Brown died in 2006. You know, his estate just came out of probate this year. This year, he died in 2006. How much of his estate do you think got sucked up in lawyer fees and court costs? Because proper structure is the key to everything. So before I dive in, I'm going to 
touched on what you said that, that actually Nelson Rockefeller was the one who coined the phrase, um, the key to success is to own nothing but control everything. But they don't tell us what that means. And Nelson Rockefeller is the grandson of John D. Rockefeller, former vice president of the United States of America. Obviously, he's got some connections and, and we've all heard that statement, but we don't know what it means. Right. So more contemporary, a lot of people listen to uh, Robert Kiyosaki and Kiyosaki says all the time, the difference between rich people and poor people is poor people want to own things. Rich people don't want to own anything. Right. So what are they talking about and how do you get there? Well, I'm going to tell you a trust is the only way you can accomplish control without ownership. And you said something critical, Rick, that I want to touch on. You said a lot of people own things, but they have no control. Here's a good example of that. Every one of us has a cell phone, right? Don't pay the bill and they're going to show you who controls it. I don't care if you're making payments on that phone or if you bought it outright. Don't pay the bill and they will show you who controls it because control is all that matters, right? So um, you want me to go ahead and just jump into the information or do you want to dialogue a little bit before we get there? No, uh, uh, lay the foundation and then we'll come back around and we'll, we'll, we'll fill in the gaps uh, because I think that you have so much and hopefully we'll get a chance to get you back because you have so much uh, that I think is pertinent. Uh, a lot of it, I took the time to outline in the book, but you know, everybody's not going to take the time to read. Uh, and this is an opportunity to put someone who has spent a significant amount of time. And definitely, I think one of the, and I think that you and I have talked about this, but I have found that one of the most underused uh, levers in wealth building is insurance. And uh, I think that we, we are missing the mark in that. Another one is compound growth. Uh, we, we work the opposite way. We have compound debt. Right. And I try to tell people all the time that the number one enemy of wealth is debt. When you take your, uh, gross assets, everything you own, you're going to subtract your debt and liabilities from it. And that's your net worth. Mm -hmm. Well, when you've got debt that exceeds what you own in assets, that means you're broke. And most people are living above their means. Right. And that's why we're going to have an entire generation for the first time in history, leave the following generation in a worse financial state than when they came into their situation, because everybody is trying to prove they have it instead of having it. Come on. Keeping up with the Joneses, right? Yeah. Uh, that's it. Chasing the American dream. Mm -hmm. chasing the American dream has literally ripped us apart. I need the car. I need this. I need to wear this. I need to show them I got it. And then you look, even watch those of us who graduate through the processes. Look at Jay-Z when he had 150,000. Look at the pictures. Mm -hmm. Look at Jay-Z as a billionaire mm -hmm. and see the presentation. T-shirts, sneakers, walking around. You sway broke. Mm -hmm. Had $100,000, had, had the whole 100,000 on his neck. That's, that's, that's maturity, bro. Wisdom. Yeah, it, it's the thing that money doesn't have to announce itself. It's when you're trying to prove you have it that you're trying to announce. The problem is you keep yourself broke trying to prove to people you're not broke. You ever heard the phrase wisdom whispers? Hmm. Wisdom so, don't have to scream. A fool screams from the mountaintop. Wisdom whispers. And wealth, that's the millionaire next door mentality. 
you ain't trying. Why would you want to have all of that showing on your person? Um, if you, especially once you reach that billionaire mark like Jay-Z, man, you're putting everything you own and everyone you love at risk. You want to blend in. Yeah. Not like that. You're trying to blend in. So, yeah, go ahead and, and you know, and, and break out the basics and then we'll get as much of this in as we can. All right. Well, I'm going to start with something that's going to be a little, little eye popping for, for the listeners so they can understand why I'm going to go to the IRS website. And um, I'm going to contradict some things that the IRS tells you on their website. OK, so I want to start with this. This is a Supreme Court case. U.S. versus Ballard. And I'm reading this to you, even though I know most of it off the top of my head, because I believe documentation beats conversation all day, every day and twice on Sunday. So take notes. U.S. versus Ballard. Here's what the Supreme Court says. Income is not defined in the Internal Revenue Code. Rick, what do we pay taxes on? They tell us we pay taxes on income. OK, but that's a word they can't even define. So how are we paying taxes on something you can't quantify? Number one, it goes on to say, well, this is Internal Revenue Code, Title 26, Section 6201, says it only provides authority for the secretary to assess the tax, not the income. Okay, what again, what do we pay taxes on? (laughs) Income, something you have not defined, you cannot quantify, and you have no authority to assess the income, you have to assess the tax on the income. Here's why. This is another United States uh, Supreme Court case, Florida versus United States. The income tax system is based on voluntary compliance, not distraint. That's why they can't assess the income. You have to volunteer to report your income. Then they can assess the tax because the word income is not defined. And if you don't volunteer, they have nothing to assess. Did anybody tell you that you had to volunteer to pay taxes? Right. None of us knew that. So we're going to get into just a little bit of what proper structure does for you. We're going to talk about protecting the things that you spent your life building. And we're going to talk about keeping the government out of your hair with what I just shared. Taxes. It is If you can't define the word, then you cannot possibly tax me on it. And there's nowhere in the Internal Revenue Code, nowhere in the code where it says we must pay income tax, nowhere in the entire code. So I want to talk to you guys about the two most powerful tools that we have in business in America. That is a contract and the proper jurisdiction of law. And when you marry those two things together, you, you basically become bulletproof, and I'm going to show you that. But before I talk about those two things, I want to talk a little bit about what the IRS tells us, because most people are, uh, would you guys agree most people are afraid of the IRS? Yep. Intimidated, a little shaky. What do they say? There's two things you can't avoid, death and taxes. Mm-hmm. That's a lie. So I'm going to start with with the IRS. Right. And I want people to take this down. I want you to go look at it for yourselves because I'm about to argue some of the things that the IRS puts on their website. 
but I'm going to do it with case law. So I need you to know where to go to find this information. The IRS at irs.gov, they have a page called Abusive Trust Tax Evasion Schemes, Special Types of Trust. And there's two pages of trust that they call abusive, right? Most of what you'll see on those two pages of trust is there's no legal precedence, and most of it doesn't even have an IRS code attached to it. But I'm only going to talk about three because three are relevant to what I'm going to share today, right? The very first one on that list, the first one is a common law trust. And I need you to hear what they say about it. It says common law trust. Contrary to the claims of promoters, common law trust no longer exists since all states now have statutes relating to the creation and operation of trust. So contrary to the claims of promoters, common law trust no longer exists. What does it mean when we say no longer? I mean, they existed at some point in time, right? No longer exists. Why? Since all states now have statutes relating to the creation and operation of trust. So state law has done away with common law trust. That's the first one they put on their list of abusive trust, special types of trust, tax evasion schemes is a common law trust. There is no IRS code and I need people to go do their due diligence. This is on their website now. There's no IRS code. There's no legal precedence. There's nothing. It's words on the web page, right? So we're going to go to page two of this list of trust. And the second one I have highlighted is the business trust, right? So we're going to look at the business trust. It says the term business trust is not used in the internal revenue code. The regulations require that a trust operating a trade or a business be treated as a corporation, a partnership, or a sole proprietorship. Hold on, time out. They said the term business trust does not exist in their code. The regulations require that trust operating a trade or a business be treated like a corporation, partnership, or sole proprietorship. So the word business trust doesn't exist, but a business can have a trust can have a business. So you just don't use the term, but you're acknowledging in the next sentence that a trust can run a business, and then you proceed to tell us how it will be treated. It says a a, a, a trust. Uh, Operating a trade or business will be treated as a corporation partnership or sole proprietorship. Keep that in mind. Common law trust no longer exists because of state law and a trust running a business will be treated as a corporation partnership or sole proprietorship. According to the IRS, once again, no code, no legal precedence, just words on a Web page. The very next one is a pure trust, pure trust. Is synonymous with a common law trust. It's a true trust contract placed in the proper jurisdiction of law is a pure trust. Um, so what they say about pure trust, the term pure trust is not used in the Internal Revenue Code. Same thing they said about business trust. When they turned around, and told you a business, a trust can have a business. They just don't use the term. Right. It says, whatever the name of the arrangement, however, the taxation of the entity must comply with the requirements of the Internal Revenue Code. The requirements are based on the economic reality of the arrangement and not its nomenclature. Let me tell you what they're saying. The requirements are based on the economic reality of the, of the arrangement, not its nomenclature. The trust contract will determine how this trust is going to be taxed. 
the contract governs, not the name. It doesn't matter what you call it. Nomenclature doesn't matter. It's going to be taxed one of three ways. So they go on to tell you, if the pure trust meets the definition of a trust, then it will be taxed under simple, complex, or grantor trust rules, depending on the trust instrument. The trust contract will govern how it's taxed. There's only three ways to tax a trust, simple, complex, or grantor. The trust document will determine that. They don't determine that, right? So these are the three things. Once again, no IRS code, no legal precedent, but it's listed under abusive trusts, special types of trusts, a tax evasion scheme, so on and so forth. Look it up, irs.gov. Now, let's get back to this other conversation I was telling you about. A contract in the proper jurisdiction of law, right? When you marry those two things, you become bulletproof. Whether this is business and avoiding taxes or whether it's just protecting something that you own that you don't want to have the liabilities of ownership. Let me touch on this real quick. The reason Rockefeller said the key to success is to own nothing but control everything is simply because there's liabilities to ownership. Anything you own can be taxed to you and taken from you. If you don't own it, they can't tax it. They can't take it. But inside of a trust, as a trustee, you still have full control of it as if you owned it. But none of the liabilities of ownership. All right. So let's look at the definition of a trust. A trust is a three-party contract in which one can create a binding inviolate entity. The creator is able to specify the terms, provisions, and who the other parties are. So let's back that up. A trust is a three-party contract. Who are the three parties? Got to have a creator, a trustee, and a beneficiary. As long as you have those three separate distinct parties, you have a true trust contract. And the creator is able to specify uh, the provision terms and who the other parties are, right? Here's where we run into a major, major problem in the world of trust. Are you guys familiar with the term living trust? Yeah, I am. All right. So that's about 90, 95 percent of what our attorneys are putting together for, for clients now. A living trust. It is what is called a grantor trust. And what they typically do is they have the creator also be the trustee and then they pick their beneficiaries. And that's their three parties. Right. But that's not three parties. That's only two parties filling three positions. You follow me? A trust is a three party contract. If you have one person filling two of those positions, it's not a contract anymore. It is now a trust agreement. And if you go into court, let's say you have an accident, car accident, and you're at fault, and somebody uh, is injured or perishes and the family wants to sue, right? They come after you. They realize the judge says uh, he or she doesn't have anything in their name. Uh, they realize you have a trust and we want the assets of the trust. If you have a properly structured trust contract, it creates a separate legal person. By IRS definition, it's a separate legal taxable person, separate legal entity. It's not you. So the judge is going to say, I'm sorry, but, you know, Mr. Wallace doesn't own those things in that trust. I can't give you access to that. A, a grantor trust, a living trust, because you hold two positions in that contract, that's a trust agreement. And when you go into court, it's not a separate legal person. It's not a separate legal entity. It is what's called an alter ego, which means you still own it. 
So people are going to find out, a lot of people are going to find out the hard way when something goes wrong, that the trust you have structure is good for probate. What we talked about earlier, a living trust will, will bypass probate every time, but it has no asset protection capabilities. Going back to how a trust is taxed, grantor, simple or complex, a grantor trust, a living trust, because it is uh, the creators, the creator and the trustee. And nine times out of 10, the EIN number of a living trust is the creator's social. That tells you it's still you. If it's operating under your tax ID number, it's still you. And a grantor trust, a grantor trust means that the creator is responsible for all of the tax liability. If that don't tell you something, nothing will. It's not a separate legal entity. It's an alter ego. It's not a contract. It's a trust agreement. You still have liability. Tax liability and asset liability in a living trust. There's no asset protection capabilities. Now, that lets you know that the trust contract is important. It has to be three separate distinct parties, right? Now, once you do that, I want you to see what the constitution and what the courts have to say about the value of that contract, right? This is article one, section 10 of the United States constitution and it states in part, no state shall pass any law impairing the obligations of contracts. What does that mean? That means the people that we vote into office in any state we live in in this country cannot pass a law messing with a contract. What's the definition of a trust? A three-party contract. Well, the people who make the law can't mess with it, right? I want to read you a case, Hotchkiss versus Northland Petroleum. This says, courts, however, must enforce contracts as made, not make new ones for the parties, no matter how unreasonable the terms may appear. So, Rick, if you and I go to go to lunch next week and, uh, and we decide we're going to enter into a business contract and that contract is completely lopsided, it's 95% in your favor and I'm just getting bent over every which way, right? Doesn't matter. If we both put our signature to it, it's legally binding. If you go, if you watch any of the judge shows, people come in with their disputes. The judge listens to one side, listens to the other side. First thing out of the judge's mouth is what? Do you have a contract? Because it must be enforced no matter how unreasonable the terms may appear. So the people, the Constitution says the people who make the laws can't make a law that will impair a contract. The courts say a contract must be enforced. Doesn't matter how crazy the contract is, you cannot alter it. So if the people who make the law can't make a law that can mess with the contract, and the people who enforce the law must enforce the contract, for all intents and purposes, you, you're creating law. You understand what I'm saying? That's the value of a contract. That's why it's the most valuable tool we have in business is a contract. Now. When you take that contract and you put it in the proper jurisdiction of law, it becomes bulletproof. And I'm going to go through this piece and then we'll take some questions and we'll dialogue a little bit. Most people don't understand that there are three different jurisdictions of law that you can function in in America. Right. There's admiralty law, which is really military. And nobody wants to function in that arena because you have no rights there. Then there's statutory law, which is state law. Right. Right. Most of us, that's all we know. 
And if we're going to structure a business, we're going to we're going to go to the state and get our S Corp, our C Corp, our LLC. And we're going to operate under entities that they have given us permission to have That's statutory law. The third is common law. We touched on this earlier. Common law is really the true law of the land. The United States Constitution was written under English common law and common law was here before there were any states. Every state in this country, the true law of the land is English common law, except for Louisiana, because Louisiana was originally owned by the French. And the true law of the land of Louisiana to this day is Napoleonic law. Right. So that is a jurisdiction that we can operate in regardless of what the IRS tells you. And I'm going to show that to you. So now. What happens when you marry this contract with the proper jurisdiction of law? I'm going to read you a handful of court cases. Crocker versus McClay. And this is a Supreme Court case. A trust organization consisting of a U.S. constitutional right of contract cannot be abridged. Means you can't penetrate it. Now, let's go back. The United States Constitution was written under what? English common law. A trust organization consisting of a U.S. constitutional right of contract cannot be abridged. This is why the agreement, when executed, becomes a federal organization and not under any of the laws passed by any of the several legislatures. That's the Supreme Court saying when you take this trust contract and you put it in the proper jurisdiction of law, it cannot be abridged or penetrated because it becomes a federal organization, meaning we operate above the state. There's not a judge in any state in America who can hear a case regarding a common law trust because they don't have jurisdiction. It's a federal organization by Supreme Court precedents. Now, that case doesn't say specifically common law, though, right? The IRS said common law trusts don't exist anymore. So Roger could just be talking out the side of his neck. Well, let's read some more legal precedents so we can make sure that Roger's not talking out the side of his neck. A business trust. Hold on. Now, this is uh, Elliot versus Freeman and Crocker versus Malloy. It starts out by saying a business trust. That's a word they said they don't use. Right. A business trust is a common law entity formed by contract. Hold on. There's a term that they don't use. We don't use business trust. So it's abusive. It's on the list of abuse because we don't use it even though we turn around and tell you that a trust can run a business because we don't use that term. That is a a uh, abusive trust term. Here's the court saying a business trust is a common law entity formed by contract. Roger's not talking out of the side of his neck, right? Common law trust, they said, don't exist. Do not exist. Here's a business trust and the common law trust in one sentence from the courts. A business trust is a common law entity formed by contract. And listen to this. And thus is not subject to the same types of state regulations as corporations. It's formed by contract, so it's not governed like corporations because they don't give us permission to exist. But I want to take you back to what the IRS said about a business trust. The term business trust is not used in the Internal Revenue Code. The regulations require that trust operating a trade or a business be treated as a corporation a partnership or sole proprietorship. Somebody's not being honest. Somebody's not being honest. It says they don't use that term, but a trust can run a business. And if it does run a business, it's going to be treated like a corporation, a partnership or, 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 or 
a sole proprietorship. The courts say a business trust is a common law entity formed by contract and thus is not subject to the same types of regulations as a corporation. Let's go to the next court case, Ashworth versus Hagen's estate. One of the main objectives of a trust contract is to obtain most of the advantages of corporations, but with freedom from the burdens, restrictions, and regulations generally imposed upon them. Is that not direct conflict with what the IRS says? Again, they've not said anything, anything at all abusive about a business trust. All they say is we don't use the term. But a trust can own a business. And if it owns a business, we're going to treat it like a corporation. There's two court cases that says you are not going to treat this entity like a corporation. Next court case. A business trust may be organized to engage in any business in which individuals or corporations may lawfully engage. How much legal precedence do we need to see to recognize that words on a web page without an IRS code or without some sort of legal precedence really is a fear tactic? That's really all it is, is a fear tactic. So I'm going to read one more case to y'all and then we're going to wrap this up. This is a Schumann, Hink, and Foster. Actually, I'm going to read two more cases. So this is a Boyd versus U.S., and it's called Right to Contract. It says, right to contract cannot be abridged. Isn't that what we heard earlier? Once executed, comes a federal organization. It cannot be abridged. Right to contract cannot be abridged. The agreement when executed creates a federal organization not under any of the laws passed by any of the several legislatures. Same thing we heard in Crocker versus McClay. It's another Supreme Court case. Last, last case I'll read is this, Schumann Hink versus Folsom. This type of trust is also sometimes referred to as a common law trust because it finds its basis in the law of contracts and does not depend on any statute for existence. We do not need the state to pass a law saying we can have such and such an entity to operate. We can create our own law through contract and operate without permission, which is why they can't control us. So as a business owner, um, proper jurisdiction is going to be critical to protecting what you what you have tax wise and asset wise. As just somebody who has assets that you want to protect, getting that trust, well, first of all, you got to have a proper contract. You have to have the contract, right? But placing that contract in the proper jurisdiction of law now makes that a federal organization. Whatever you're trying to protect, they can't even sue. I mean, you can do things wrong, right? You can have a reason for somebody to sue you. The car accident we talked about, but you don't own that. And even if somebody had a reason to come after your trust, they got to go to the federal courts to even deal with it. Most attorneys are not equipped to practice in federal courtrooms. But we're going to add that layer of protection. One, you don't own it. And two, it's above. It operates above the state. There's protection in that. So, Roger, uh, the first thing that, that I would want you to clarify uh, is why is it important that it's operating above the state? Because I think that most people, when we start talking about corporations, we're talking about LLCs, S-Corps, C-Corps, and things of that nature. I think 
the idea is that because the IRS is always seemingly involved, that that's federal, that's that's a federal structure or that it's been structured federally when actually it's structured within the state that it uh, it has domicile in. So right. domicility is going to determine where that actual corporation is structured. Absolutely. Um, so, it's, so basically, just explain, I know you have already, but again, uh, explain what happens when you take, say, for instance, an unincorporated business trust, Massachusetts trust, whatever, but a trust that is set up and structured uh, to create the separate entity that's necessary while also allowing you to have control as a trustee. Uh, so, so, so explain that. Well, what I'll do is, is for the listeners, I'll give you two practical stories, real life stories of why jurisdiction matters. Right. So early on in my career, I had a young lady, um, who was, a well, she a regional CEO for Keller Williams real estate down in Beaumont, Texas. Right. If you know anything about Texas and you know, Rick, you down there, Beaumont's were the first oil well was drilled in Texas. It's old oil, good old boy money down there, right? So we were talking one day about what I do and she understood some things. She knew about trust. She knew about a business trust. Um, she knew about a proper contract. She knew those things, but I could tell in our discussion, she didn't really understand jurisdiction, but we didn't get in it, into it too heavy. Um, she asked me if I would come down and do a presentation for her agents on proper business structure to help them mitigate tax liability. So I went down there, I gave my presentation. And when I got done, she had this puzzled look on her face. And, and she said, Roger, do you need to leave right away? Or can you hang out for a few minutes? I said, uh, no, I'm good. What's going on? So she pulls me into her office, closes the door. And she said, I want to tell you what happened to me um, when my husband passed away. I said, all right. She said, we had three boys and my middle son was addicted to drugs when he turned 18 years old. Um, and, and so we'll actually, let me back up. She said, we had three boys and we set us, we set up a trust for each one of the children. So they had a proper trust contract where her mother was the creator of the trust and there's wisdom in this. Listen, mom was the creator. She was the trustee. Each one of the boys were the beneficiary on their own trust. Who has control? Trustee. Only. Yeah. Creator and beneficiaries are irrelevant control everything, you must be the trustee to pull that off, right? So they structured it properly. Mom was a creator. Now she's out of the way. By the way, an irrevocable trust is only irrevocable to the creator. It's not irrevocable to the trustee. The trustee has full control, which means you can put things into trust or take things out of trust, but nobody can mess with that contract. We just heard what the constitution and the court say about a contract. The law can't make a law that can impair it and courts must enforce it. Well, that middle child that was addicted to drugs, when he turned 18, he wanted what was in his trust. It's a half a million dollars. He went and got an attorney and sued his mother. She ended up in court in front of a state judge. And let me say this, state judges are the authority for the state. And we have a bunch of judges. And I'm going to give you this example and one other example where state judges like to legislate from the bench. They don't necessarily follow Supreme Court precedents and they don't necessarily follow the Constitution, but they are the authority for the state. So here's what happened with this case. 
she went into this courtroom feeling secure because she had a proper contract and they're not supposed to mess with a contract. This judge revoked her irrevocable trust, gave this kid a half a million dollars, and he blew every dime of it in less than 12 months. Here's a mother who had some knowledge, had a proper trust contract, thinking she was doing what was best for her kids. She missed one piece, and that is jurisdiction. And this judge did what no judge should do. And it wasn't an appealable case. It wasn't something she could take to the appellate courts. She was in their jurisdiction. That's a problem. Now, I mentioned earlier that there's no, there's nothing at all in the in the tax code that says we must pay income tax, right? Here's some stuff everybody can Google on, on regards to this topic. There was a, a group that put out an article, and I want to say the USA Today, and this was, I don't know, this was about 2008 is when I came became aware of it. So it was before that. Um, they, they put out a full page article asking, saying we'll pay a fifty thousand uh, dollar reward to anybody who can show us where it says we must pay income tax in the IRS code. Young lady that I've become friends with that I'm going to tell you this story about Sherry Peel Jackson. You can find her all over YouTube. Her story is everywhere. She's an IRS agent at that time, read this article, said I'm about to go get this money, went front and back through the code three different times. It's not there. Sherry is a devout Christian woman and was disgusted at the fact that she had been doing the things the IRS does and there's nothing in the code saying we have to pay taxes. Well, there were three of these IRS agents. One was a guy named Mark um, in Sacramento, I believe. Another guy named Joe Bannister in San Jose, California. And they all quit their jobs and went out and started teaching people the truth. And obviously the government didn't like that. They pressured Mark out of the game. He walked away. Joe and Sherry said, I'm not walking away. I'm going to tell the people the truth because I've been lying to them all my career. Both of them ended up in court. Joe ended up in court in San Jose, Sherry in, in Georgia. Joe's case was first. Joe brought in Supreme Court precedents documenting, one, that the 16th Amendment was never fully ratified, that it, the government has no ability to, to tax us directly. Every tax should be an apportioned tax. He brought in the constant. He brought in all kinds of stuff. Right. Judge said, you know what? You're right. Let him go and say, y'all need to leave this man alone. That was Joe in California. Sherry went to court in Georgia. Went to bring up the same constitutional arguments, the same Supreme Court precedents. The judge literally told her it was irrelevant. Sherry spent three years in jail. Same constitution. Same Supreme Court precedents applying to these cases, two different state judges, one wanted to follow the law, one wanted to legislate from the bench. You got to get above that. And here's why. At the federal level, you're guaranteed an appellate court, which is a, a panel of judges. You're going to get at least three. And we see it all the time when there's federal cases. They'll go to the appellate court. And you're going to have judges that hold each other accountable to the law. You don't get one rogue judge who can cost you three years of your life. Jurisdiction is critical. The contract by itself, based on the Constitution and, and the court precedents, should be bulletproof. But because we don't, we have judges who want to legislate versus adjudicate, you got to get out of that jurisdiction and operate above that. So uh, the next thing is, and, and I, I want to make sure that we're focused on what's going on here. Again, we've talked about it at the beginning. You and I have talked about it. 
for some time. Um, but I think the important thing that I, I want to leave people with, because they're not going to get your breadth, your breadth of, of, of knowledge in one sitting. Uh, so we want a theme and we want them and I'm going to have uh, on the site, I'm going on the uh, Black Voice channel, I'm going to have his website. I'm going to let him say it. It's real simple. So it's easy to remember. So you can check him out on the website. But th the whole thing that I'm trying to create is the oversimplified concept of wealth building is a problem within the black community because we don't understand, number one, money. The difference between money and currency mm. is a big problem. Mm. You know, you, that's why you got people still with money under their mattress and done, doesn't understand that every year it's worth less mm. because of a number of different things from the fact that it, it's not underwritten by anything of value. Uh, you and I have talked about that within the group a couple of, uh, more than a couple of times. Uh, but I've been teaching debt-based economy concepts as long as I can think of people don't get the fact that if you don't have a currency, what gives the dollar value and and how does it remain a universal international reserve? Well, it's debt based. So we need you to actually spend more money than you make because people are buying your debt underwriting the value of the dollar. The problem is that's starting to catch up with us. Mm -hmm. And so the last thing actually the economy can take is everybody becoming financially responsible. Mm -hmm. And so but but the whole thing is most of us don't get it because we don't understand it. So we just think wealth building is getting money. No, wealth building is first and foremost getting money. And I'll I'll prove it by a story. I'm uh two two real quick analogies, and then you can take them and you can blow them up and do what you want to with Theodore Johnson. Theodore Johnson was around in the early 1900s. Worked for UPS. Think the most a man ever made was fourteen thousand dollars, but some kind of way. He had access to a millionaire and he would always tell this guy, man, I want to be wealthy one day. I want to be wealthy. And the guy said, hey, it's real simple. All you have to do is and, and this is a concept that I try to tell everybody. It's a slow grind. But if you start early enough in life, by the time you're in your 40s, you are real. You're real set. And that's compound growth. What he told him was take 20 percent of your income and invest it in something that grows with compound growth annually. And he says, man, I don't make, but blah, blah, blah. I can't afford to take 20%. He said, you can't afford not to. He said, so you can't afford not to. He said, just because of that, you can't afford not to. He said, let me tell you something. If the IRS right now set up to say they was raising your tax rates and you were going to get hit an additional 20%, you would throw a hissy fit. You would fall out, kick and scream, but you would pay them. Why not tax yourself and make sure when you leave this world, you leave something behind? Okay. So for $14,000 as a maximum income, now granted $14,000 is probably about 30, 35,000 of what someone would make today. But still, when he retired, he kept working. He never stopped working. He retired worth 72 mil. Mm. Okay. Here's the one that hit a home, a black guy. And I, for whatever reason, I can't think of his name now, but you can look him up. He was a parking lot attendant, never made more than $12 an hour in the financial district. I want to say in New York. So in the financial district, he made he never made more than $12. He worked for 30 years as a parking lot attendant, but he worked in the financial district. So he's got financial advisors, stockbrokers, all these people who park their cars in his parking lot. So they get to know him over time and he's hitting them up for advice. He's investing based off of their knowledge. 
He retires worth over well over a million dollars and he teaches it to his children. He passes it down. The key to it isn't just the generation. It's learning how to protect it and how you pass it down. Now, you talked about a living trust. Well, living trust is effective, is in protecting the assets after death. After where death. It, Right. after So that it does not go into probate because people talk about wills all the time. And I try to tell people, look, a will is only good if everybody goes along with it. The moment that somebody legally challenges that will, we're headed to probate. Absolutely. You know what I say a will is, Rick? Right. I say a will is an express invitation to probate court. <laughs> Come on. That's what that's all, what all you need is one person to know that they can challenge it and challenge it, and it's a problem. But if you set it up in a living trust, and uh another thing I tell people all the time is if you're gonna use insurance as one of the mechanisms by which to pass down wealth, one of the things you definitely need is a trust. Why? Because whoever's the beneficiary, if it's not the trust, is not obligated to the will. If I'm an individual and you leave it to me, even if you have a trust, if you leave me as the beneficiary, I'm outside the trust. Absolutely. So then the trust and has to be there is a tax liability. Right. I'll be passing on to you. We don't ever leave anything to beneficiaries. Right. You leave it to a trust that can distribute it and the trust protects it against tax liabilities. Well, That's yeah. what makes the trust better than the actual corporation. Let me jump in there real quick because anytime you leave something to somebody, there's a transfer. Right? That's what a estate tax and inheritance, tax, all that stupid stuff. This is what a trust avoids. You don't leave stuff to people. You rotate trustees. So if I pass and, and my daughter is, is, is the one who is my successor trustee, she goes to the bank with my driver's license or excuse me, her driver's license and my death certificate showing that I'm not here and that I, she's the person on the paperwork as the successor. I didn't own it to start with. I just controlled it. Now she controls it. There's nothing moving. There's no transfer of ownership. There's no tax liability. We don't leave things to people. We create new people who control what we built, uh, spent our life building. And that's what, and one of the reasons the wealth gap is widening is because of lack of this type of knowledge. Absolutely. Is biblically, they, we know biblically, Hosea said, my people perish for what? A lack of knowledge. But we don't read the rest of that verse. It says, since you have rejected knowledge, I will reject you as my priest and your children. Children. Yes. Generational curses. We don't accept or receive true financial knowledge. And there are two sets of information in this country. There's a set of financial information that is given to the public. That's what you're reading on the IRS website. That's where people go to get public information. They go to Google, they go to the IRS, and they look up stuff. And they're all going to talk to you about corporations, LLCs, partnerships, sole proprietorships. Never are you going to see the term business trust. And the IRS tells you we don't even use the term. But then when you go to the courts, that's that private information, which is not really even private. It's just not taught. That word common law trust was all over every one of those court cases. Who are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to Google and the IRS with no references to anything? Or are we going to listen to repeated Supreme Court cases that, matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I got I to express this real quick. One last case. And this is a... Uh, 2011, so this is in our generation, in our era, 
people sometimes say maybe what's on the IRS webpage is more relevant. These cases are outdated, right? So 2011, this case went down. I want to read it to you. It's called, it says, Supreme Court rules no fiduciary exception between the U.S. and Native, Native Americans. This is the Apache Indian um, that have a trust that the U.S. is trustee over, over their trust. They're the beneficiaries. The, the Indians felt as if um, the government was misappropriating their funds. Said, you know, you need to open up the books and show us what you're doing with the corpus of the trust, which is the assets of the trust, right? Here's what the court said to the Apache Indians. And these are justices that are still on the bench today. The opinion of the court by Justice Samuel Alito reasoned that the government acting as a trustee is unlike a trustee in a private trust created at common law because the government is acting within statutory authority granted to it by Congress. Y'all hear that? That is a sitting justice right now making a very clear distinction between two types of trust and two different jurisdictions of law. And what he's telling the, the Apaches is now, if common law didn't exist, that's what the IRS says on their webpage today. Common law trusts don't exist. If they didn't exist, he would have said, Mr. and Mrs. Apache kick rocks. That's not real. That's not what he said. He says the government acting as a trustee is unlike a trustee in a private trust created a common law because the government is acting within a statutory authority granted to it by Congress. Now, here comes uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. This was her first year on the bench. Justice Sonia Sotomayor was the lone dissent arguing that the government is fulfilling the traditional fiduciary role as a trustee for the benefit of the tribe. Then she says, further, she argued that the exception should exist since Rule 501 of the Federal Rule of Evidence text says that the government's privilege is to be informed by the common law. Why? The law of the land, not state law, not statutory law. The law of the whole land is English common law. So when you get on that federal level, everything they do at the federal level is informed by the common law. Everything. So you got two justices that sit on the bench today, making it clear there are two different trusts, two different jurisdictions. And when you're dealing in this federal jurisdiction, it should all be based on common law. Their own rules of evidence text says it's their privilege to be informed by common law. We got to get in the right jurisdiction. We don't even know that the jurisdiction is open to us, that it's available to us. We, we, we reject knowledge. We don't listen. There's two sets of financial information, and this is all about systems, the systems they create for you and the systems they create for themselves. I'm going to say this and I'm going to stop. When the IRS was started in 1913, there were two tax forms that they made. One we all know very well. That's a 1040 tax form. Everybody in their mama's filed one. You've probably been filing it all your life. The other was a 1041. That is a trust and estate tax form. They've both been here since the beginning. That trust and estate tax form is two pages long. Now, if you have a substantial uh, uh, business income and holdings, you filled out 1040s that can be hundreds of pages. I've seen them. Their tax form is two pages. Now, here's the kicker, Rick. We don't know anything about a 1041 tax form 
But when you're settling a person's estate, when they get to probate, what do they file at the end of it? They file a 1041 to settle your estate. That's the only time most of us ever deal with the tax form that they created for themselves. They created a tax form for the informed family and a tax form for everybody else. And everybody else has to deal with that 1041, but not until you die. How telling is that? Right. Um, and again, I think that uh, we go back to, uh, like I said, one of the most oft quoted scriptures, like you say, incompletely quoted. Uh, and I often bring in that second part as a teacher is it's not just the rejection of knowledge uh, that destroys. It's the promise to what happens when you reject knowledge because you rejected it. I will reject you. I'm not just going to reject you. I'm going to reject your children. And we don't get it. We're passing down curses in, 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 in multiple layers, mm-hmm. in ignorance, spiritually, financially. And it's all connected because we don't want to learn. We don't want, you know, don't, they don't told forget, Don't forget emotionally. Oh, yeah. That's definitely running rampant right now. Mm-hmm. And so. In every in every one of these areas, we're experiencing these curses and we we are looking at them from a mystical perspective. When the escape comes from awareness, the escape and the healing comes from awareness, the escape and healing from poverty comes from awareness, the escape and healing from trauma comes from awareness, the escape and healing from uh, disruption and disunity comes from awareness. As we become aware, J. Edgar Hoover. I want to say in the late 60s was asked. What is the greatest threat to a national security? His response was simple and confounding to most people. He simply said, black unity. Mm. Black unity. That's that, his fear. And if you look at how he moved, he showed you he wasn't lying. His fear was black unity. So what did he spend his entire time doing? Creating division, disrupting, exploding organizations. Drugs in our communities. Yes. So, and and if you look at it, that's been the systematic thing. So wealth isn't just what you can grab because both Theodore Johnson and man, I'm going to see if I can pull up this guy's name, (laughs) but uh, so that people can see. There was something you said. Matter of fact, while you're doing that, Rick, I want to touch on those two stories because you said something critical. Both of those men who ended up so successful in the end, they ended up there. Why? Because they sought knowledge. They sought wisdom and they right. sought from somebody else who has it. And here's the point I want to touch on. If you ever want to go anywhere in life, find a mentor. I don't care if it's business. I don't care if it's uh, spiritually, emotionally. We learn, we might become masters in a topic, but you don't learn about a topic until somebody shares it with you. Right. So these guys mastered what these with these other wisdom, these people with money told them they did it. They were di- diligent about it. They were right. disciplined in it. They may have even gone further in their investing and in, in compounding interest, which, by the way, um, Einstein said was the eighth wonder of the world. Compound interest. Compound interest. Right. Right. But had they not sought that? And here's the problem I see um, in the church and in particular in the black community is. You can't tell grown folks nothing. None of us is seeking wisdom. 
The book of Proverbs, the, there's three words you're going to see all over the book of Proverbs, guidance, counsel, and instruction. The problem with our people is you can't tell them nothing. Can't tell grown folks nothing. And nobody's seeking guidance, counsel, and instruction. You just gave two examples of two brothers that didn't seem to have much that ended up well off. Why? Because they applied the biblical principles. That's why Hosea said when you reject knowledge, the principles are there. We're rejecting the principles, which means we're rejecting knowledge, which means we end up stuck and cursed generationally. Right. And in, in rejecting knowledge, what we also have to say is we're rejecting God. And yeah. yeah, we're rejecting God. When you reject knowledge, you're rejecting God because all knowledge comes from where? That's right. OK, so when you reject knowledge, you're rejecting God and God literally has set up the universe to respond to you receiving knowledge. You receive knowledge, you act on knowledge, the universe responds to you. It's It cannot be with him. God himself can't change it because he created the law. If he, if he interrupts the law, he violates his own sanctity and his integrity and therefore his holiness. So he set it in motion and no matter what. That's why you got people who are atheists using biblical principles to build wealth. Why? Because they understand it's, it's irrevocable. Brother, where, God, where's the offering plate? <laughs> that's all I'm at. Where's the offering yeah. Hey, that right there was that's the whole story. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your belief system is, the law is the law, the law. It it, it works. It's that apply, knowledge is not power. Applied knowledge is power. So you can even know the truth and have some knowledge if you don't put it to work. What good is it doing you? Right. And see, that's the problem we have. We have this thing that even if we're seeking knowledge, we're not seeking knowledge for betterment, we're seeking knowledge for uh the, the right to say, I know more than you, the right to be the winner of the debate. Right. So we are more concerned with being right than we are with being well. And, 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 and that's the problem is I want to be right. So if you show me where I'm not right, I don't receive it well. The cognitive dissonance of you showing me I'm offline doesn't set well. So I move past the message to attack the messenger. Mm. So now, uh, now what you have real quick, there's three other words you see in the, in the book of Proverbs as well. Guidance, counsel and instruction. You just touched on the other one. Uh, rebu rebuke, reproof and correction. We don't we don't seek the first three and we will not receive the second three. And that's what the whole book of wisdom is about. Right. The guy's name that I'm talking about is Earl Crawley. Mm -hmm. And to, to add to, to correct it, what, I, what I'm saying right now is he never made more than $20,000 a year. He was still working in his 60s, but he retired with his home paid off, his children's educations paid for, and a portfolio over $500,000. That's where everything paid off. So that's everything. So if you look at the portfolio plus the assets of everything paid off, he's worth over a million bucks. Absolutely. Okay. This is a guy making $12 an hour. So tell me why you got people making six figures filing bankruptcy. Okay. It's all mindset. Okay. So then the thing is, we have to get the mindset. We have to understand. Again, I go back and I said David Rockefeller. I'm thinking about the 70s. I meant John Rockefeller. Rockefeller. Right. Right. Okay. But you go back and then you talk about, like I said, Nelson sit up and said, biggest day. Hey, here's a trick. Don't worry about owning it. Worry about controlling it. Mm -hmm. 
anything, the word control tells you everything. If I control it, I'm the one with the power. Your name on it doesn't mean anything. That's that cell phone example. Don't pay the bill. So here's another one. There's, 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 there's several levels of ownership, even in a home. Number one is we're told a lot that our home is our biggest, li- our big, biggest asset. But until we gain ownership to where our equity exceeds our liability in debt in it, it's actually a debt. It's actually a liability. And it's our biggest liability most of the time. But anyway, here's the thing. When you get it, it's in your name. The deed comes, it's in your name. But it has what? Taxes. Taxes, number one. That's one way you're going to lose it. Mm -hmm. Especially when we start talking about gentrification, local taxes. We ain't even talking about the feds. We're talking about local taxes. It's one of the ways we lose our property. But your name is on it. Exactly. Your name is on it, but the people who control everything still have their fingers and access on it. But you have um, a lien against the property by the lender. Which is in what place? First place. (laughs) Yeah. It's in the first place. So the lender has the asset. Right, you just you okay. you're buying the home. You don't own anything. Your name is on it, right? But you know you've been talked into believing you own it. You own it when you have absolute ownership, and you still have a problem because now you still have taxes that have to be paid on it, no matter how long you own it. You still got the county, unless you do a, a land uh, land patent and, and and get the land in your name. You're right. always going to be beholden to somebody else. Right, always, which is how they want it. This is what you said. It's a debt-based society. We're always going to be accountable to somebody else, unless you know the things we're talking about, and and most importantly, unless you know not to have the liabilities of ownership. I'm gonna say this, then I'll be done. And Doc has just been sitting there, man. Uh, I'm. Uh, we need to get him in here. But uh, <laughs> one of the most profound things I ever heard was uh, Bishop uh, Desmond Bismarck out of, I want to say Tanzania. He was in, he was in America and he was teaching at a, at a conference and he said something that just stuck with me. And I've been talking about it ever since he says, we lose because we don't understand how things work. And he used Tanzania. I want to say it's Tanzania, but he used Tanzania as an example. He says, we're in, we says, he said, we got our, independence in 1957 he says we're a very poor country but we have copper mines Mm -hmm. he says the problem is the government didn't know how to mine the copper mines Mm -hmm. so a company came in and said we will take care of mining the copper mines and we'll give you 75 million dollars for the rights to mine the copper mines Mm -hmm. and because the government didn't understand how things work the government didn't invest in knowing how things work the government took the deal. Now, here's the deal. That was a foreign company, I'm guessing, right? Yes, it was a foreign company, European-owned foreign country, company. Right. Okay, they come in and say, we're going to do it. Offer $75 million. Now, here's the kicker. They didn't even offer it up front. They said, give us 90 days, and we'll give you the $75 million. They start mining the mine, take and earn the 75 million, pay them with the money they earned from their thing, giving them 5% annually on what they're producing in the copper mines. All while you got poor people dying, 
You got one of the highest AIDS populations in the in, in, in the in the world. You got all this stuff going on, and you literally had the answer right there, but because you didn't understand how things work, you gave it away basically. Mm. They took your copper and paid you with the proceeds for for mining your copper. I mean, it's crazy, but we do it every day in some form. Uh, we, we do it every day with, with 401ks. We do it every day. So, so while we're talking about, you know, them taking our stuff and using it for their good, let's just real quick touch on this because I know we're here to t- talk about asset protection. But this is an asset protection issue because your 401k is not an asset. It is not. An asset is something that typically a- appreciates in value and, and, and that you can put an insurance policy on and that a bank will take as collateral. Nobody's insuring your 401k and no, no bank is going to take that as collateral because it's not safe. All right. So it's not an asset. But they tell you this. They tell you that you don't pay taxes on this money right now. It grows tax deferred. You pay taxes later. Somebody tell me what the tax rate is going to be in 30 years from now for that 25 year old kid or 40 years from now who wants to retire at 65. What's the tax rate going to be? Here's what we do know. We have thirty one trillion dollars in debt in this country right now. There is no way they can address that without raising taxes. What else we do know is we are in the third lowest tax rate environment in United States history since the IRS came into existence in 1913. We also know that these government qualified plans came into existence in the in the 70s, right? You want to know what the tax rate was then? The highest tax rate in America, if you made $200,000, was 70%. If you made $200,000, you had to give the federal government 140 of it. Nobody knows this, but you're giving up. You're giving up something you know for something that is completely unknown. That's not planning, it's gambling. And then on top of that, you mentioned, Rick, the dollar is always going to be stronger today than it is tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Dollar is a dying instrument. Why would I give up strong dollars today for something that's dying? It is going to be weaker for weaker dollars tomorrow or 40 years from now. I know it's going to be much weaker in 40 years from now. Why would I do that? But these are the things that... They have us doing like it makes sense. But here's what I want to say. If you take the word the IRS and you take the space from between those two words and make them one word, what does it spell? Hmm. The IRS, what does it spell? Theirs. Yeah, in the proper context, not they are, not over their possession. So government qualified plans is what's going on in Africa. What you're talking about in Tanzania, they're using your resources against you. It's not yours. And the fact, the proof that that it's not yours is if you want to touch it before they say you can touch it, they slap your hand. That ain't your money. If you got to pop my hand for touching my money, that's not mine. It's yours. And that's what the IRS says. It's theirs. Hey, Doc, uh, you've been sitting there. I know we've been going, man. Uh, what uh, You got a question or you got something you want to add? Well, I think all of the information is great. It's good. But I think people, uh, and I know that's what his services do, do is um, provide instruments. And I think that's what's really lacking um, for our people. Um, when I was an investigator for uh, the prosecutor's office and I went around investigating abuse and neglect and uh, financial exploitation of elders, from about 2014 to 2019, one of the most glaring things that I noticed, and I think I spoke to you years ago about it, Doc, was when I went into probate court uh, and was dealing with trusts 
with people who are, were financially exploited. Uh, many of our people's assets were very much different than everybody else. When I say ours, I'm talking about black folks. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that uh, our elders had very, very little assets compared mm-hmm. to our white and Asian counterparts. Mm-hmm. And so as I have listened to, to Roger, um, I think it's very key to separate uh, the proper instruments because I know we're all getting these uh, DMs from this person and that person. It's so muddy out there because of, you know, uh, uh, Internet is great, uh, but there are so many talking heads out there, some of which uh, might not be as ethical as Roger. I know that you're not going to bring anybody on here that is unethical, but there are so there's so much so much mud out there being slung around that our people, even if they do uh, want the knowledge, man, it's hard for them to navigate who's real, who's not, who's providing uh, information and who's not, you know, whether it's uh, uh, finances, whether it's uh, uh, spirituality, uh, whatever topic we want to talk about, there are, you know, everybody has a platform now. Mm. So it's important that we uh, lead people to the right well of water. That's, that's the only thing I can say. You know what, Rick, can I jump in on that real quick? Because I, I know your audience is going to be students. You got you got people listening to this that are going to they're going to want to do some due diligence and, and not just right. listen to what I say, but go look some stuff up. So I want to say this real quick based on what Dr. Michael just said. Folks, we can have no financial literacy without history. If you don't know what they've done over a period of time, you don't know what they just like I said about a 401k. Everybody and their mama signed up for their 401k because they think it's what they should be doing. They have no idea when those things even came into existence, how the tax system works, the IRS, none of that. So I'm gonna give folks three critical dates. If you really want financial literacy in America, you have to look at history. The first date is 1913. That's right. <laughs> 1913. That is when the Federal Reserve was created and the exact same year that the IRS was created. Once they got their bank, they established their collection agency and it changed everything. The next date I'm going to give you is 1933, the Gold Confiscation Act and HJR 192. That term public policy comes from this House Joint Resolution from 1933. Go see what public policy really says. Right. And then 1971, that's when Nixon convinced the whole world to lose their mind right along with us and take gold from backing any currency on the planet. If you don't understand the significance of those three dates, there's no literacy that's going to help you. There's none. Like Rick said, we don't even know what money is. We think this stuff in our wallet is green. mess is money. That ain't money. That's currency. Currency. Yep. Period. End of story. It has no value. It's a promissory note. That's all it is. It's a How promissory is? note that's supposed to represent something of value. There you go. When you have look at as it says Federal Reserve note across every bill. What's a what's a note? House note, boat note, car note. It's it's a debt instrument. That's it. That is all it is. It's a promissory note. There's nothing to it. Talking but, about talking about wealth loss and then we can sort of wind it up because we could do this all day Uh, (laughs) talking about wealth loss and you're talking about 401k 
uh, I, I often tell the story about one of the businesses that I ran in the early 2000s was I worked as an international relocation agent. Uh, and what I did is I expatriated and I repatriated high level executives all over the world. You know, if you you know, I had Nortel, CDS, um, Unical, Flora Daniels, Dresser Industries are some of the people that I expatriated. They're, they're uh, high level execs. You know, you can send a VP over to London, a VP to Balik Pop in Indonesia, Jakarta, Indonesia, Perth, Austria, wherever you're sending them to. They're running in your office over there for several years. Mm -hmm. I'm expatriate. I'm getting their paperwork together, their, their visas, their passports. I'm handling their household goods. I'm handling everything. Then when it's time for them to come back, I repatriate them. I ended up with the contract to repatriate Enron employees when it collapsed. Oh, wow. I got to see what a gutted 401k does to people. Come on. And it totally changed everything about hybrid. I watched people leave this country thinking they were on top of the world, that they were, you use the term bulletproof, mm -hmm. that they were bulletproof. Mm -hmm. I watched a, uh, a high level executive assistant who had been working for the company for nearly 30 years through all the name changes. Two years from retirement, thinking she's retiring with over a million dollars broke. Mm -hmm. And then I started to research and I found out that one of the place where wealth is being hemorrhaged more than anything else is the 401k at a rate of about 17 billion a year. Mm -hmm. 17 billion a year people are losing. Because it's not an asset. This is not about saving money. That's just currency. They, they're saving in an account. Yeah. That is not yours. It's theirs. The elite don't save money. They know better than to trust in the paper currency of any country. Right. Of any That's government. Right. They're saving right. assets. They're saving gold and silver. They're saving uh, real estate. They're real property. Yeah. Collectible art, collectible cars, things that you can put an insurance policy on and things that the bank will take as collateral. If they won't take it as collateral and you cannot insure it, it's, it's not an asset. Now you right. Not a tangible asset. Those are the qualifying characteristics. Your 401k don't count. Matter of fact, your bank account don't count. Your bank will take that cash as collateral because they don't want it. They want the asset. I tell I tell people all the time that. Obviously, the higher up you get with how much money, how much you're worth, the more cash you'll have in your account because you may want to travel or whatever. But I tell almost all new or low-end millionaires don't have a million dollars in the bank. For what? You know, you know, uh, what they have is a growth, they have a net worth of one million, meaning their company is worth so much amount of money. What their real estate properties, their real estate portfolio is worth a certain amount of money. Like you say, art is one way that they love to hide money. Hey, Rolex, yeah. Uh, yeah. diamonds for their wife. People don't understand it ain't all about bling. All that stuff is insured. You're, so, for example, Rick, that million dollars, if you put it in the bank, what do they say? And it ain't even a fact. They say it's insured. What? Two fifty, three quarters of your money is at risk. You have no protections. So what do they do to protect their money? They buy things that they can insure. And with their money, the only the only companies that insure money, 
sure currency is life insurance companies, which is why it's such a valuable tool that we just don't get because we think it's about dying. We don't understand right. life insurance is about the living benefits. Dr. Rick, I think Muriel has a, a question uh, similar to what I really have. Um, back in 2007, when we had the collapse, I had just uh, been with Stanley Corporation down here in South Florida for a couple of years. So I didn't have that much in 401k, but some of my coworkers, uh, like you said, Dr. Rick, some of them had in excess over a million because they had been with Stanley Corporation for uh, much longer than I had. Uh, they got up one morning, went to, you know, got up one morning uh, and that, that million dollars was gone. So Muro is asking a question I have. What is what is the alternative to 401ks, 403bs and education, uh, mm -hmm. the traditional state run uh, uh, retirement plans that they offer you on uh, in, in uh, uh, businesses? What is an alternative instrument uh, for people who actually uh, work for the state or work for the federal government? Uh, if you could provide that in a, in a, in a, in a quick Absolutely. Real quickly, real quickly, Mary, I want you to read a book called The Retirement Miracle. And it'll explain to you and it'll balance and cross-reference life insurance as a retirement vehicle versus 401ks, 403bs, TSPs, and all of those, right? IRAs, all of that. They all operate under the same principles, and it it, it shows you how life insurance lines up against those things. And life insurance is a tangible asset. Now, beyond that, guys, we got to have some precious metals. And what I would recommend is that you have silver before you have anything else for two reasons. One, um, it's the most, uh, uh, it's the least expensive of this, the precious metals. And it is the really of the most value of any matter of fact, it's more valuable than all the, all the other precious metals put together. Platinum, palladium, rhodium. Uh, gold, none of those are as valuable. Altogether, they're not as valuable as silver. Why? Here's why. Supply and demand. We all learned this in, in, uh, in, in junior high school, supply side economics. Anything that is that is of high demand and there's a low supply is going to be extremely costly, right? Well, here's what we know about the precious metals. Platinum, palladium, rhodium, we don't see many uses for those. Right. But there's still you know, anywhere from a thousand to fifteen hundred bucks or somewhere in that range for those three. Gold is eighteen hundred dollars. But what do, they, what do people do with gold? They hoard it. There's not many uses for gold. Silver is used in everything. It is used in everything. The computer, the cell phone, these smart TVs, X-rays can't be made without silver. Bombs can't be made without silver. Airplanes, vehicles. They use it in everything. So why is silver $21 an ounce? The best time to buy something is when they're asking the wrong price for it. And what I'm trying to get people to understand is silver is being manipulated. So you and I and the rest of the world don't know just how valuable it is. But I promise you, when this fiat system goes away, the uses for silver are going to cause it to be more valuable than all the other ones put together. So it's cheap. It's expensive. Buy it on. Look, what do they say? Best time to buy some on when it's on sale, right? So right. sale. That, 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 that's what that's what Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio uh, runs the largest hedge fund in the world, hundred sixty five billion dollar hedge fund, and he's actually shut down. He doesn't take clients in anymore uh, because he says that's as large as you want to grow it because it's extremely difficult to manage. So 
165 billion. And one of the things that Ray said is the stock market is the only place where something goes on sale and people panic. Mm. And where are most people going to build their wealth is when the market crashes and everybody starts to panic and sell. I tell people all the time, if you're going to be in the stock market, number one is stop trading. Acquire and hold what you know has the longevity. If a company has been around for 20 years, they've shown you whether they can withstand the, the tumultuous moves. The market has been a bear market, uh, bull market thing since it started. So for years, you have this normally around a five-year move where everything is kind of moving and going up, whatever. And eventually, they start playing with manipulating numbers, reports, and everything, and they create a bubble because they get people to think that stuff is more worth more than it is, and people start buying. You drive up the price, you create a bubble. And eventually, the market has this unbelievable way of correcting itself. Mm-hmm. So when you hear of a crisis or stocks dropping, what they're doing is the market is self-correcting. It's going to do it. Now, what you have when you have a crash is when the market overcorrects itself. And so now it plummets. And what happens is eventually it realizes and it and in all the mechanisms that are there and it starts to correct. And the beautiful thing about this happens normally every four or five years. And what, 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 what we know is the longer it takes to correct itself on the upswing, the more powerful the upswing and the longer it stays corrected before we start to see another one. So what happened is after the crash in 2007 was so emphatic, but the recovery was so strong. It took so long. First of all, it took a long time to get out of that. But when it did recover, it recovered so strong. It took longer for us to get back to where we're at right now, which would have normally been four or five years. But look at the companies that survived. Poor people are going to eat McDonald's. People are going to buy Nike, and that's the easy, simple stuff. And then you go off into, look at the Fortune 500. You can go to the Vanguard or you can go to the S&P, and both of them are going to pretty much mirror each other. And you look at it, and they're going to show you who your performers are and how they perform. Learn how to read a financial. Learn how to read a history. Learn how to go. Hold those, because here's the thing that most people don't get who try to jump in the stock market, is when the mark, when the price of your stock per stock drops, you haven't actually experienced a loss yet. You don't experience the loss until you exact a transition where you trade. Once you sell your stock, you realize the loss because you sold it at a reduced price. What you should believe in is what you've done your research on. My company will recover. Because guess who's sitting there? And, and how I learned this actually was crazy. I'm like, Okay, if stock is crashing and it's worth almost nothing now, who's the idiot buying it? Oh, he's called a crisis investor. He's laughing all the way to the bank because he knows the company's stock is going to go back up when the market corrects. So he waits for you to panic, sell it at pennies on the dollar. He sits up and holds it and goes back up and then he sticks it in his portfolio and skips off. And that's the things that we don't know. So, again, cash on hand only for necessities because tomorrow, the next day, we don't know. But at some point, Father Time is going to catch up with a fiat currency that's worth zip. And the more you have on hand, the more you lose. 
Let me say this, Rick, for the people so they can understand what you're saying and see it from our government's vantage point. We're not far off from the dollar reaching its intrinsic value of zero. So I want people to take this note down. This is a House resolution, H.R. 5404, H.R. 5404. This was a bill that was introduced in Congress in March of 2018, and it tells you that the dollar has lost 30% of its purchasing power since the year 2000. So in 18 years, the dollar had lost 30% of its purchasing power from 2000 to 2018. And then it goes on to say it's lost 96% of its purchasing power since what? 1913. That's when it all started to shift. So since 1913, it lost 96% of its purchasing power. What does that tell you? Our dollars really worth four cents. That's why everything costs so much, people. It's not because bread is different, milk is different, gas is different. Your dollar is dying right before your eyes. Congress said we need to go back to backing our money with gold. They said it in 2018. We're almost halfway through 2022. It's been four and a half years. They've done nothing. Your dollar is weaker now than it was then. So understand how close we are. It's a real thing. If they don't make this shift to backing our currency with real assets, it will see a value of zero, just like every other man-made currency that's walked away from real money. And real money is the precious metals. I have one more question. Uh, and I know the answer, but I, I'm going to let you have it. it and I'm going to put it on the screen. It says, since the Roth aspect has been added to the 401k, does this make the 401k more viable? Roth is, so you have what are called tax deferred plans, which is all the other government qualified plans. A Roth would qualify as tax advantaged, right? It operates similar to a life insurance policy. The money that you're putting into the Roth, you've already paid taxes on. It grows tax deferred. You get your money out tax free. That's similar to uh, a life insurance policy. Here are the two problems with the Roth. Um, you still have market exposure with a life insurance policy. You can never lose money. And like we're talking about earlier, it's not about what you earn. It's about what you keep and what you spend. And when you're giving money back in down markets, your portfolio is never going to perform the way it should. The other problem with the Roth is it still has uh, some of those government qualified plan rules on. it, So they will slap your hand if you want to touch your money. That says it's theirs. It's not yours. You don't have that issue with life insurance. Now, there's other issues with the Roth. If you make too much money, you can't participate. And they limit how much you can put in there. I think it's now $6,000. There's no limits on life insurance. So a Roth is, is more along the lines of where you should be going in thinking in terms of tax advantage vehicles versus tax deferred. But it's still not the best, in my opinion, tax, tax advantage vehicle. Right. I agree. Um, and I think that what... I would suggest, and again, it's about reading and understanding because there's so much to be known. And uh, the thing is, what I tell people all the time, hear me, but then go research me. Go look and find for yourself. Find, and my, the, the way I work is if I hear it once, I'm going to need to find three other times that I see it and see it play out and produce the same thing. Doc, that's the scientific research side of me. You know, can it be re can it be reproduced? Absolutely. And so, so the thing is this: 
Get away from liquid assets. You want hard assets. Uh, he named them precious metals, diamonds. Now, uh, precious metals, precious jewels, real property. Uh, those are things that you can get in. Art. Anything hey, Rick, that Rick, Rick, can I share something real quick? So I, I meant to mention this earlier, and I, I want us to see how much they tell us without telling us. So there's two movies I want to reference. Um, the richest man in the world was the J. Paul Getty story, right? Mm -hmm. He was a ruthless cat. But at the end of that, I want you to see what they talked about. They talked about all of these tangible assets he held, and he held them in trusts and foundations, <laughs> right? They tell us what he kept and where he kept it, all of it inside of trusts and foundations. Um, but here's one that all of us know. Um, trading places, right? Eddie Murphy was Wendell Valentine or whatever, right? right? And when they got him off the street and took him to the house and gave him a bubble bath and he coming out stealing stuff, putting stuff in his pocket, like, I don't know how long this is going to last, right? They're like, look, you don't need to steal these things. These are yours. He's like, man, come on. Y'all just had me put in jail. Now you can bring me in here and tell me all this is mine. So this is my vase, right? I can play like Medlark Lemon with this vase if I want to, right? Drops the vase, right? Here's the message in that. He's panicked. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm so sorry. No, 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 no. That's fine. Everything's OK. Oh, so that base was a fake, right? No, I think we we paid $50,000 for it. What? But Randolph, I believe we we paid 50000 but we insured it for seventy five. <laughs> Why would you put $50,000 in a bank that you cannot insure when you can buy a vase and have 50% equity in that mug in insured? They tell you everything you need to know. I used to wonder why somebody would buy a, a $10 million or a $25 million piece of art and hang that on the wall in your house. I'm like, are you crazy? Or buy a $300,000 car and put it in the garage and never drive it. They're protecting their money. If I bought it for 25, I guarantee you it's insured for 30. Exactly. Steal it if you want to. They tell us everything we need to know. We just don't understand the language. But have, you ever, front of us. have you ever noticed that when somebody wealthy is going through a rough patch, something always gets stolen from them? Look, I never I haven't picked up on that trend. But it's simple math. It's insured. Yeah. Nothing liquid is insurable because our money has no value. The bank don't want it. Matter of fact, here's something else people can look up so they can really understand what's valuable to these banks. Look up BOLI, B-O-L-I, bank-owned life insurance. And right after that, look up COLI, C-O-L-I, corporate-owned life insurance. Banks own more life insurance than anybody on the planet, and corporations are right behind them. We just need to pay attention. They're telling us what's valuable. You don't put your money in a bank. You put your money where banks put money. Right. Where banks put money in life insurance. All they're doing is taking your money and investing it. In life insurance. They buy more than anybody on the planet, and corporations are number two. Who? I mean- Warren Buffett says if, if poor people would just do what rich people do, they wouldn't be poor anymore. This is one of those things that rich people do that all of us can do. You can have a cash value life insurance policy for the living benefits. They're not buying policies to die. They're buying policies to make their money an asset. 
It is now insured. It is now collateral. Go to your bank and ask them if they'll take a cash value life insurance policy for collateral. Then ask them if they'll take your crypto account. Then ask them if they'll take your, your, your government qualified plan. Then ask them if they'll take their own bank account as collateral for a loan. None of those will be a yes. Life insurance will be the only one that they will accept. This is right. what banks are doing. They're protecting their money. And on that note, um, we done blessed everybody who wants to be blessed. Uh, and the thing is, tell them where they can find you. I'm going to put it in the uh, description box, but tell them where they can find you online. Uh, yeah, online. My website is www.thegrant, my last name, Grant, consultinggroup.com. And my email address is uh, roger at thegrantconsultinggroup.com. And on that note, man, uh, thank you. Doc, you have anything to add before we jump off? No, I just want to tell Roger, thank you for all the wealth of information he gave. Keyword wealth of information. Amen, brother. Amen. And I, I want to tell y'all something. I want to tell this audience something. Those dates are all critical. They're major dates. But you really got to study 1933. The Gold Confiscation Act. You got to study that and understand the implications because we are operating. There's so much out there at our fingertips that we just don't tap into because we don't know. But that date is probably the most important of the three that I gave you. 1913, 1933, 1971. Research them. Okay. On that note, we're going to get ready to get out of here. And...